Since we're in between studies on uh, books of the Bible, I'd like to address you as a church today. And I must confess that uh, one of uh, the books that God has used in my life, outside of the Bible, of course, to influence me is uh, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. If you've never read that, I encourage you to do so. It is in the church library. And one of the, one of the marks of a healthy church that defines, how do you know what is a healthy church? One of them has to be a biblical understanding of evangelism. This being Missions, missions Emphasis Sunday, uh, it's important that we think about this. Missions is not just paying missionaries and, and uh, going out on missions trips. It's much more than that. And ever since the inception of the Billy Graham Crusades in the 1950s, which you'll see a PowerPoint uh, picture of, of one of the Billy Graham Crusades, uh, uh, as well as the rise of the ecumenical movement and the increase of parachurch groups. Sadly, evangelism has come to mean different things to different people. So if you, in fact, even in our little group here, if, if I was to ask you what is evangelism, we get all kinds of different answers. We have different opinions on what that is and what that looks like. Well, to some, doing evangelism means inviting people to church. You don't tell them anything, you just invite them to church and they sit down and listen to the preacher. Or it might look like the crusade picture you see there where thousands upon tens of thousands of people come and they listen to some preacher and, and they're invited or urged to walk some sort of an aisle and pray a prayer. And indeed, many can scarcely imagine genuine conversions happening in any other way. To others, evangelism is not listening to a monologue and, and an inv- going, being invited to join an invitation. For them, it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. And so the thought of some speaker imposing his, his own particular views on some captive audience is just too much for some people to bear. Well, for others, evangelism's initiating conversations with a stranger, or it might be sharing a gospel tract like you see here, or uh, praying a prayer. Uh, for others, it's evangelism is for the prose. Put quotation marks around the prose because there is no such thing. You know, for some people, they think, well, evangelism is too serious of a thing. It's too important. It's not for me. That is for the pastor. That is for the Bible professors or the uh, the youth leaders, or people like that. Because evangelism is just too important. Who am I, after all, to even try it? So what do you think, though? What do you think? Are each of these methods as good as the others? Are they equally harmless? Or could there possibly be some dangers lurking under the surface of some or even all of these various methods that were mentioned. And by the way, what exactly are we doing when we do evangelism anyway? What are we doing? In other words, let me ask you this. What are the essential components of evangelism? And if you relieve out any particular component, then you'd have to ask yourself, am I actually doing evangelism? Those are the essential components. And 
How do we define evangelistic success? People define that in different ways. And by the way, once you have the answers to those questions, then how do we actually go about doing evangelism, and what are the proper motives for evangelism? Well, those are some of the questions I want to address in today's message. So let's, let's just start with the, the first probably obvious question is, what is evangelism? What is evangelism? God calls us to do this, but what is it? Well, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it can be easy to look at the, what, what it's not, and then we can address what it is, and, that, and I want to do that with you. So what it, evangelism is not? Well, number one, evangelism is not imposition. Some people equate evangelism with imposing uh, your views, your religious views on another person. But that idea, by the way, is, is totally mistaken. That's not what evangelism is. And, and to equate evangelism with imposition implies something, something quite significant that we need to consider. See, Christian Christianity is not subjective. The Bible is not subjective. God is not subjective. And so to say that evangelism is imposing your religious views on somebody else is to suggest that God and His Word then and the truth that is in the Word is then subjective, which, of course, it is not. God's truth is objective. It is not to be debated. <laughs> it is not to be argued. And so to equate evangelism with imposition then implies that Christians are able to convert people, which is entirely false. You can't convert anybody. I can't convert anybody. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the reality is, humanity is so entrenched in sin that it takes the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to change that person, to regenerate them, convert them. None of us would ever repent and believe in God if it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit. It would never happen. Therefore, Christianity is actually unique, when you think about it, among all the world's religions. It's very unique because it's actually impossible for us to impose God's truth upon people. It's impossible. We can't do it. We cannot impose uh, God's belief structure on other people. Only God is the one who convinces people to repent of their sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's why Christians are not going around killing the, the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and all the others because that's not what we believe. That's not what Jesus taught. We don't convert people through guns and knives and through imposing. We can't do that. Number two, evangelism is not your personal testimony. By the way, if you don't know your personal testimony, you need to write it out, and I'm happy to help you with that. It's a powerful tool, but that's not evangelism. And so many people share their testimony in a way that just merely tells them of the benefits of their conversion. Sadly, there's this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's become quite popular today. That's not evangelism. Telling people, you know, come to Christ and you're going to be wealthy and healthy and wise and, you know, all your problems are going to go away. That's not evangelism. And typically, when you just tell people the benefits, all they're going to say is, hey, good for you. Good for you, but that's not for me. Personal testimonies 
must communicate the claim of the gospel. It must claim, give that claim that is on your life. Evangelism number three is not social action nor politics. That's not evangelism. Some people mistake social action or political involvement for evangelism. The problem we face, the problems we face in our society are just symptoms of something that's far greater. See, what's our problem? What's our greatest problem? It's a sin problem. Right? So all the things that government is, is trying to deal with is, they're going about it all the wrong way. And sadly, Christians kind of get caught up in that and think, well, I need to get involved in politics or social action, thinking that's going to solve the problem. It won't. The problem is a sin problem. They need the gospel. They need Jesus. So please don't think that evangelism is social action or politics. Evangelism uh, that stops at just meeting people's felt needs or being politically active is not evangelism because it's failing to clearly communicate the gospel message. It's not communicating that they need to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And number four, I've been doing a lot of study on this one recently on apologetics. And there's a lot of good, well-meaning Christians who think evangelism is apologetics. But as you can see, number four is evangelism is clearly not apologetics. You say, well, what is apologetics? Well, that just comes from a Greek word in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where it talks about giving a defense, giving an answer. And, and often people assume that defending the faith by answering their questions and, and having even, even open debates with skeptics is evangelism. That's not. Apologetics can certainly and often does lead to evangelism, but just answering people's skeptical questions is not evangelism. Jesus must be presented as God's only provision for their sin. And if that doesn't happen... Evangelism never took place. That's one of the problems with these open debates you'll see on YouTube or TV. Number five, some people equate evangelism with getting results, but that's not evangelism. Perhaps the majority of people have confused evangelism with the desired results of evangelism. Hopefully you have a desire to, to see people saved. Hopefully you're giving to missions because you want to see people saved and God be glorified. But evangelism is not simply seeing people converted. True evangelism can occur many times, thousands of times in your life and in our church without someone actually being converted. Did you know that? It's not the result that equals evangelism. And so confusing evangelism with results is actually going to lead to you getting frustrated, you're going to become disillusioned, and you will probably give up, which is why most churches never seem to do evangelism, and why most of you rarely, if ever, do evangelism. Because maybe you equate evangelism with getting results. And when you don't see the results, you give up. Well, God's Word can certainly have different effects on people. We read about that in Isaiah 55. And that's what Jesus taught in the parable of the soils when we 
studied Matthew chapter 13, we, we read that parable, which I'm not going to go through that right now. But one of the things in that parable we, we find is that the sower, he goes out, the sower scatters the same seed. He didn't change the seed, it's the same seed, grabbing into the same bag, scattering that seed across the various soils. So it wasn't the seed that was the issue in the results. It was the soil that made all the difference. And so the message of the parable is that some people will respond to the gospel, and clearly some will not. There was only one of the soils that ended up bearing fruit, even though all four of the soils heard the gospel. Only one bore fruit. So then you might ask, well, what is evangelism? What is evangelism? Good question. Well, biblically, evangelism is simply telling the evangel. You notice there's the word evangel in evangelism. You say, well, what does evangel mean? Well, evangel is the gospel. Evangel is the good news. It's clearly articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what is the gospel? What is this good news? Well, here's four points that I learned from somebody else a long, long time ago that I try to keep in my mind, in my heart, when I'm evangelizing. And I put them up here on the screen for you. They're God, man, Christ response. Okay? Just four points. If you can remember that, you can tell someone the gospel. It's God, man, Christ response. So if you don't know those, write them down, please. Remember these. God, man, Christ response. So it starts with God. What do you need to know about God? What does an unbeliever need to know about God? He needs to know that God is holy. And by God being holy, it's, it's much more than him just being sinless. You, Everybody needs to understand that God is unique. He's distinct. He's separate from His creation. And as a result of that, He can't allow sin into His heaven. And He's not going to overlook sin. And that's the second point, that man is guilty. We stand condemned, as Romans 3 says. There is none righteous, no, not one. We have all sinned against God. And as a result, we can't even save ourselves. It's a bad situation we're in. But fortunately, there's a third point, and it's Christ, that Christ is the Savior and Lord. Christ paid the penalty for your sin. You could never do it on your own. You needed a Savior. And so that calls for number four, which is a response. The response is, you must change your mind about your sin. That's called repentance. And then when you change your mind about your sin, you must turn to the only one who can save you, and that's Jesus Christ. So you repent and you believe. Believe is just another way of saying you, you trust, you, you have faith. It's your belief, your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ alone. One author said it this way. There's a quote on the screen here for you. Evangelism is not a making of proselytes. It is not persuading people to make a decision. It is not proving that God exists or making a good case for the truth of Christianity. It is not inviting someone to a meeting. It is not exposing the contemporary dilemma or arousing interest in Christianity. It is not wearing a badge saying, Jesus saves. Some of these things are right and good in their place, but none of them should be confused with evangelism. 
to evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what He has done to save sinners, to warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. Couldn't say it any better, which is why I give you the quote. So let's, let's come to the Scriptures now and just think for a moment. Why should we evangelize? Why should we? Well, believe it or not, some of our motives can be wrong. Often our motives can be wrong. Even in doing good things, we can have wrong motives. Right? One of the motives, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is love. According to 1 Corinthians 13, if you do something for any other reason than love, it was worthless. And sometimes we can be selfish when we evangelize. Some churches are, seem to be more concerned about not having their doors closed than they are about love for God and people. Some individuals are more concerned about being right. They love winning arguments. They want to appear intelligent to other people. All those are wrong motives. So let's quickly address our motives here. Make sure that we're evangelizing for the right reasons. Number one, and we'll look at some scriptures here. We should evangelize out of obedience to God. Number one, out of obedience to God. The Apostle Paul was clearly, when you read his writings in the scriptures, was motivated by the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. Some of the things that the Holy Spirit's written in scriptures, like in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, for example, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, like Paul? Necessity is laid upon me. There, there's nothing more important at this point than to tell this person about Jesus. If not, boy, we, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit's power in our life then, don't we? We're all familiar because we've gone through the book of Matthew this last year. Matthew 28, I'll remind you what it says. Verse 19, here's what Jesus said. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the command there is make disciples of all nations. Of course, you can't do that on your own. And that's why we support missionaries. That's why we're to be involved in missions. So we're commanded to do evangelism, to tell of the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ, by making disciples. So it's more than just telling somebody and, and bringing them to Christ. It, it includes teaching as well. And so the command in itself is designed then to elicit obedience in us. That's what commands are for, right? Jesus doesn't command us to do something, and he, ex he doesn't expect us to ignore His commands. Jesus expects us to obey His commands. So biblically, evangelism is simply telling the evangel, clearly articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling them of this claim that the gospel has put on their life. God expects them to repent and to believe in Jesus. 
So what was the first motive? Obedience to God. Right? The greatest command, love God with everything. Number two, ultimately we should evangelize out of love for God then. If we're commanded to do it, we need to love God. After all, what did Jesus say in John 14? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments, Jesus says, if you love him. Well, one author put it this way, quote, Love for God is the only sufficient motive for evangelism. Self-love will give way to self-centeredness. Love for the lost will fail with those whom we cannot love, and when difficulties seem insurmountable. Only a deep love for God will keep us following His way, declaring His gospel when human resources fail. End quote. Yes, you should love people. But because we're sinners, that unfortunately has a limit. So love for God should triumph, should trump. So love for God was going to result then in a desire for us to obey His commands and promote His glory. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 2. Here's what Peter said. He said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want to emphasize that last part. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. We are not to be the glory. We are not the object of worship. God is. So when someone looks at you and your conduct and the, the message that you're bringing, they're to see your good deeds and glorify God. Well, the Bible says it's out of the overflow, the abundance of our heart that your mouth speaks. So I have to ask the question, what is your heart full of then? What is your heart full of? If your heart's full of Jesus, you're going to be talking about him a lot, aren't you? It's going to be evident whom you love. So what do you spend your words on? A third question to consider is this, who should evangelize? Again, remember, some people think it's for the pros, you know, hey, pastor, that's what we pay you to do. Maybe you don't think that way, but I know some churches think that way. The, answer, the short answer to that question is you. And every Christian, if you're a Christian, the answer is you. So you can just fill in the blank with your name. Who should evangelize? Every Christian. Let's look at the scriptures. That you can turn to Acts chapter 8 to start with, okay? Let's, let's see it in the first century church in Acts chapter 8, okay? We already read Matthew 28. You're familiar with that. Christ's command to go and make disciples of all the nations, by the way, was given to all of His disciples, including you and me. It wasn't just given to the twelve disciples. So that's we, we could park there for a while, but you're familiar with Matthew 28. But I want you to see how... The command of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, was lived out in the first century church. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts 8, verse 1 says that Saul approved of his execution. He's talking about Stephen in the previous chapter there. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And... 
they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So let's just stop there for a moment. Who's being scattered? Just normal Christians. Not the, not the apostles, not the pastors, not the elders. The people of the churches were being scattered. And how did God do that? God brought persecution on the church to spread His gospel. Did you notice who's actually staying in Jerusalem? It's the apostles. Who's doing the preaching? Normal, everyday Christians were the ones going and preaching the gospel. All right, let's, let's go on to another chapter. You can see something similar over in chapter 11. Look at chapter 11. Yes, God can use something horrible, even like persecution, to accomplish His purposes. And that's what we see happening here in the book of Acts. Look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 19. Verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, just your average people here, look at this, average normal Christians, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So again, it's just Christians preaching the gospel, sharing, telling of the evangel. Look at Acts chapter 6. You're probably familiar in Acts 6 with a man named Philip. Philip is described as a deacon. You have to understand, a deacon was a position in the church. There's two offices of local church. You have elders and deacons. Deacon was just a service position. Physical and and the financial matters of the church were handled by the deacons. So this is just your, your normal Christian in the church. But yet we see Philip here is, uh, well, we'll see what he's involved in in just a moment. But look at Acts 6, verse 5. Verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Then it mentions some other guys. They chose these guys to be the deacons, to look after these financial matters, the physical matters, the practical matters of the church. By the way, you need to pray for this for our church. You need to be praying for elders and deacons for our church so that we can become a more healthy church. But then we see Philip in Acts chapter 8 here, after he's been given this wonderful position. Look at Acts 8, verse 5. Acts 8, verse 5. It says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, the Messiah. That's what Christ means, the Messiah. 
And the crowds, with one accord, pay attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Okay? Go with me now over to verse 25. Same chapter, chapter 8, verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We'll just stop there because we see a man, just a normal man, normal Christian, whom God used in great ways to accomplish his purposes, spreading the wonderful news, the, the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And did you notice he's not just doing it when the Holy Spirit like transports him to the eunuch? Because for Philip, evangelism was a lifestyle. Everywhere he went, every town he traveled through, he told of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. So apparently, as you read the book of Acts, evangelism in the early church wasn't something that was left to the apostles. It wasn't left somehow to the super-Christians, to the super-spiritual. It was something that every Christian did. So evangelism is for everyone. So my friend, please do not sit there and think, it's not for me, because it is for you. It is for you. And so one important aspect of evangelism is, is the way that Christians live in a loving community with one another. Did you know that your, your example in the church has a wider effect? At least it should. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about here in John 13. Look at this. John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this love for one another, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So you see, verse 35 Your love for other believers has an effect on other people. Even unbelievers should look at our local church and the church in general, universally, and say, wow, that's a great God. I I want to be a part of that. What is it that they have that I don't? That's the way it should be. Our, Our lives lived out in community should have an influence on the unbelievers. And so the command to love applies to all Christians here. And it's one that's an, an intended to have an effect. My fourth question for you is this. How should we evangelize then? Right? Clearly it's for all believers, all Christians. Anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ alone must talk of Him, share Him. So how do we do this? Well, if conversion is understood as merely a a sincere commitment that's made once in your life, then we need to get everyone to that point of verbal confession. They need to come to this point where, as Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, they are confessing with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, biblically, though, while we are to care and we are to plead and we are to persuade Our first duty, though, is to be faithful to the obligation that God has given to us. Which, of course, that obligation, that command, is for us to just present this good news that God has given to us. And then God will take His Word and will use it to bring conversions. And so as we're presenting the Gospel in all of its simple clarity, we also need to clearly call people to repentance from their sins. Show them their sin from the Scriptures. Show them what the Scripture says. They must believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That Jesus is their substitutionary atonement. He's paid the penalty for their sin. Let me just give you some practical things that I've got from various places over the years. Number number one, what do you tell people? Right? You're to clearly articulate the evangel, the good news, the gospel, but what, what, what is it you're supposed to say? Well, number one, tell people with honesty that if they repent and believe, they will be saved. However, tell them what Jesus told them. It will be costly. It will be costly. You remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Matthew 19? Here's what Jesus told him. He said, if you would be perfect... Complete. In other words, if you want to go to heaven, here's what you have to do. Go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. That is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Jesus did not believe in a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He made it quite clear that salvation costs Jesus everything, but it is also costly for a believer and so it's not that we tell them that uh, uh, that they need to go and sell their possessions. That's not what we tell them. 
Okay, That's not how someone is saved. That's not how someone becomes a Christian. But we need to present God's demand upon them that they have to forsake anything other than Jesus. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. When Jesus was teaching there in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, poor in spirit means you come empty-handed. You have nothing to offer God except your sin. That's it. You come and you forsake it and choose everything, uh, uh, God above everything else. Number two, what do, what do you tell them? Tell people with urgency that if they repent and believe, they will be saved, but they must decide now. Show some urgency when you are talking to people. A helpful way of communicating urgency is to winsomely discourage our friends and our family and our workmates from waiting for some better deal. Often too too many people wait for the better deal. They've got this consumeristic mentality, and sadly it carries over to the the gospel. It carries over to Jesus. You know, I'll, I'll take Jesus if he's the best deal, but... Until somebody proves to me that Jesus is the best deal, I'm ju- I'll just stay with what I have. A lot of people are that way. Well, you need to tell them there is no better deal. <laughs> Jesus is the best. And, and because there's no other way for them to escape the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, you need to convince them from the Scriptures that sin is their greatest problem. Well, some people say, well, that's very narrow-minded. That's very, like, wow, you mean there's only one way? Yeah, there is. Jesus said so in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The apostle said so in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's not many roads that lead to God or heaven. It's only one. Number three, tell people with joy that if they repent and believe the good news, it is worth it. It is worth it. Yes, it's costly. And yes, they need to do it now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says if you're you're absent from the body for a believer, you're present with the Lord, but... If you're not in Christ, then you go to hell. All those who've never put their faith in Christ alone go to hell. So it is worth it. And so after an honest and then sober presentation of the gospel, telling them there is a cost, there's an urgency, we're then free to tell them. Tell them of the worth. Tell them how worth worthy Jesus is. Tell them the fruit in your own life. And so we gain forgiveness of our sins. We, we have Jesus dealing with the penalty of our sins. And then Jesus will deal with the power of your sin. You can tell him, hey, one day I know when I die, the presence of sin is going to be gone. When I get to see Jesus, <laughs> no more sin. The curse of sin will be dealt with. And even now, eternal life is something I get to, do, to enjoy now because I have this relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell them about that. Tell them about all the the brothers and sisters that you gain when you become a Christian. Tell them that you you become filled with the Holy Spirit. And according to Ephesians 1, 
you get all of these spiritual blessings that come with being a Christian. By all means, tell people that. Number four, certainly, please, use the Bible. Use the Bible when you are sharing the gospel. When we fail to use the Bible, what are we doing? Just think about that. What are you doing if you're not using the Bible with somebody? Well, either you're implicitly or explicitly revealing a lack of faith in God's power through His Word, aren't you? You're you're directing them to another authority. Scripture makes it quite clear in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Faith doesn't come by hearing your words. It comes by hearing the Word of God. Hebrews 4 makes it quite clear that the Word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharp. It's not like any other words. Totally different. The Holy Spirit takes these words that He has written and works them in people's life. Hebrews 4 even mentions it pierces even inside us, into our soul and our spirit, and divides us. Paul put it this way in Romans 1.16. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, do you believe in that power? Do you believe that God's Word, the Bible, is powerful and able to change people's hearts working inside them? See, if you, if you really believe that, then you'll use it then, won't you? You're going to show people. You're going to want them to see it for themselves. And that's why I, I often like taking those little New Testaments. That are, there's a few back there. If you want one, please take one. Take those little things. And I love, here, open the Scriptures. This is what the Bible says when I'm witnessing to somebody. I want them to see it for themselves. Number five. Please understand that the church as a whole is supposed to be a central part of evangelism. We've already touched on this, but let me share another Scripture with you from Matthew chapter 5. Verse 16, it says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Bible says you're a light. Jesus says you are light. You're reflecting Him. Because He is the light of the world, you reflect Him for the purpose of bringing God glory and honor. So we should be looking for ways then to use our practical love and holiness then to attract others to Christ. Number six, pray. Pray. Please don't forget to pray. Because you're not going in your power. You're not going in your strength. You go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And prayer is powerful, the Bible says. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Prayer expresses our dependence on God, whom, of course, we need. It reminds us that we need His power to convict people, to convert people, to conform people. And God can do that even with the most unlikely subjects, most ungodly people. Paul understood the importance of prayer. We see his prayers in many parts of his epistles. Let me give you one that I particularly enjoy. In Colossians 4, verse 3, it says this. Paul says, Pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word 
to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul recognized he could not do it without God's enabling and His grace in his life. Last, number seven. Trust in God's sovereignty. Trust in God's sovereignty. I tell you, this makes all the difference. When you're trusting in God's sovereignty, that that He reigns supreme over all of His creation, He knows every time we witness for Him, tell these unbelievers about Jesus, He knows what's going on. I mean, after all, think about it. Look what the angels said in Revelation 4. You're familiar with the throne room scene there in Revelation 4? The angel said this about God. He says, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Every person that's been created by God is there to bring him honor and glory. And so we should try to persuade men then, and women, and children. And and in doing so, we should acknowledge that only God is then going to convince and and grow people. Only God. His converting mercies are His to bestow as He wills and to whom He wills. There's a problem, though, if we don't believe in God's sovereignty. If we don't believe in God's sovereignty, that God is is, uh, bestowing His grace on whom He wills, then you know what's going to happen? You and I are going to become more likely to tell tear-drinking stories, pull on people's emotional heartstrings, so to speak. You can get people to cry. There's even books you can read on how to do that sort of thing. But what's going to happen is you can get someone to cry, you can get somebody to pray a prayer, even like our, our Indian pastor friend was talking about earlier this morning. There, there's many Indians who who just add Jesus to their their huge repertoire of gods. People might appear to be sincere in their devotion. They might cry or whatever, but are they really converted? Have they really been confronted by the reality of their sins? Probably not. In short, such a method is not going to give them new life. It in fact, it can actually damage the reputation of Jesus Christ and His church. Because there's so many people who, who attend churches but have never been converted. They're giving the wrong reputation of God. Well, I hope those things are helpful to you. So let me just end by exhorting you to use the wonderful resources that God has given to us. I mean, besides God giving you His Holy Spirit, He's given you His Word. Of course, use those. He's given you prayer. He's given you this communion with Him. Uh, the, the church has bought some tracks. Okay? Here's one of them. Okay? Please take them. And when we run out of those, there's more in the closet. Okay? These are for you to hand to people. And in the near future, we plan on doing letterbox drops. We, we haven't done one of these this last year. We have done several uh, in our community around here, all these hundreds of houses around here, and we need to do it again. I encourage you to get involved in that. Uh, So we'll be divvying out the maps amongst you, and you'll have your areas where you can go and 
And you can, you can go and talk to people and drop these in letterboxes. There's, uh, there's wonderful tools in the church library. Use them. Uh, some great books. Uh, some, one of the things that I, I really like is Christianity Explained and Christianity Explored. goes through the book of Mark. So if you want to know how to uh, just go through the gospel with somebody, there's wonderful tools like Christianity Explained and Christianity Explored that will help you. Okay, if you want to know more about those, please, encourage you to talk to me. I've got those in my own library at home. There's wonderful books back there that will help you. Uh, books like uh, you know, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. There, there's books on the Gospel and other books on evangelism. Please read them. Use them. They will help you immensely. So let's, let's exhort one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10 says, We meet together for that purpose. Exhorting one another to love and good works. One of those ways we can encourage one another is through evangelism. Let's talk, what, what is God doing? God's doing great things in other parts of the world, but how about in your life? How about in your little corner of the world? Let's talk about these things and, and say, hey, let's, let's, let's get together and let's go do some letterbox drops or evangelism or whatever it might be. That's, how are you using your average normal day? To share Christ, right? Sometimes people think evangelism is a program. It's not. It's not. Evangelism is not a program. It's telling of the evangel, the good news. It should be a, a lifestyle for you, just like it was for Philip and the apostles. Well, may God enable us through his grace to, to obey him and love him.